Gateway. Happy Sunday. I'm Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, you know, in, in just a couple weeks' time, uh, we'll be in two places at once. And what I mean is that uh, we'll be both online and in person. And now uh, there's some announcements that are going to be up on social media and the things like that with the details. But as you're watching this this week and you're perhaps considering, well, what does it look like as we go into the fall? Uh, I want you to be prepared. I want you to be prepared to see other people from six feet apart with masks on and <laughs> at Gray's Lake Terrace and uh, other pertinent details that will come to follow. Uh, but more than that, I want us to be a people who are willing to receive one another where we are. You know, in a moment such as this, I'm, I'm just struck by all of the positions that we're bombarded with, um, social and political and all the other things. <laughs> and the thing that I'm struck by is that there is the position that we hold, and then there's how we hold that position. You know, this is, this is going to be kind of at the heartbeat of, of what we're talking about today as we enter into Mark chapter 9, or rather as we continue in Mark chapter 9. And so if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. And we're going to wade into this area of the positions that we hold and how we hold those positions, perhaps to be met by Jesus through the Word of God and the Spirit of God bringing to light His Word. He might show us another way forward as we hold certain positions that are different than those that we love and care for, and, um, and then how we hold them while we're with them, if that's making sense. But as we, as we turn our attention here, you might have said, hold, hold on a second, Kyle. Didn't we cover some of this passage already? And, and you would be right. We did. We, we covered verses 33 to 37 this past week, and We've not covered verses 38 to 41, which will be a part of our teaching text this week. And one of the beautiful things about the Bible is, I love how the rabbis would talk about the, the, the Hebrew Bible in particular, but it applies to the Christian scriptures or what we call the New Testament as well, is it's like a stone that's beautifully cut, a, a diamond with multiple facets. And as you turn the diamond or the stone around in your hand and as the light reflects off, reflects off the different cuts and dimensions, you see something emerge that perhaps you had yet to see up until that point. And so that's what we're doing here. We're, we're turning the word of God around in our hand with, with this hopeful expectation that Jesus might help us see a fresh, the world all around us, that we might actually, although going to a familiar space, allow, allow for an emerging facet to capture our attention, for us to be refreshed, especially today by Jesus's advocacy for the marginalized and for those who are on the outskirts of society. And so I'm gonna read our passage in its entirety, our teaching text, and, and then I'm gonna pray and then we're going to do this. We're just going to allow God's word to work on our hearts. So without further ado, this is Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. And, and this is what we read. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, well, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And then he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, teacher, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is God's word. Let's let's pray. God, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would meet us through the power of your spirit. That you, spirit, who say you will lead us to Jesus, will be faithful to do so. That you will um, meet us in the depths of our heart, in the breadth of your love, and in the height of it, in in the full reaches of your love. Would we be met by that today, we pray. In your strong and saving name, Jesus, would would you help us to see you afresh. Amen. So in our teaching text today, inclusion emerges as a point of contention and challenge. We're just kind of getting right into it, aren't we? Now, Mark, he doesn't draw this word out explicitly, but I think that the principle is here in our teaching text. And by way of recap and track the flow here with me, this touches a little bit on last week. And so if you want to go back and watch it, go for it. But as we enter into our passage today, we enter on the heels of Jesus's second pronouncement, even his, like some scholars will call it the second prediction of his death. And this is an announcement that the culmination of his ministry is going to, going to be him giving himself away in love, even to the point of death and death on a cross. And now, an announcement like this, you would think could silence some people. And it did. It silenced his disciples. But not the silence of awe. I think it was more the silence of confusion. And then immediately thereafter, we get more silence and then arguing. And by the time we get to verse 41, the disconnect between Jesus, his words, and his disciples' ability to receive his word, man, that disconnect is front and center. It's as though something has crept into the minds of the disciples that leads them to believe that their responsibility now is to set the bounds of Jesus's love. That that they're the ones who are to police the moral behavior of others around them. And so to help us kind of get into the tension of this passage, I want us to have ourselves a little thought experiment. And so I'm going to say a word. And if you will, I'd like you to pay attention to how you feel when you hear this word. And just to, just to remind you, Jesus felt things deeply. So if when I say I want you to pay attention to your feelings and you recoil a little bit, let me just dispel the myth. Uh, strength and feeling, yeah, those aren't mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand because uh, the author of Hebrews will say that when Jesus prays, he cries aloud with groans. <laughs> Jesus feels deeply. And so uh, imagine in this moment that you are like Jesus. And pay attention to what you feel when you hear this word. Are you ready? Inclusion. Does it feel a little bit like uh, Christian clickbait? It's like those uh, 
those little articles uh, or advertisements on the side of the website you're on that have some sort of flamboyant tagline and they got you, you click it and there's no substance to be had there. Is that what it feels like? Or, or perhaps the word inclusive or inclusion, it feels dangerous to you. All of a sudden, a slurry of religious and politically progressive memes come to your mind, like that's your coping mechanism to deal with your fear, you just dismiss and laugh. However you're feeling about that word is important. Because you see how we feel about this one word and what this word has come to mean in our cultural moment. This is not the end of the conversation, quite, quite the opposite. This is actually just the beginning, like we're just getting going. <laughs> but if we fail to recognize that we carry all sorts of stuff with us into a word like that, like we, we carry emotional and cultural baggage, then, then we might miss, like if we don't pause to recognize that we carry stuff into there, especially in biblical texts that shine a light on inclusion, and if we don't see that, then we're likely to miss Jesus's heart here because We've already made up our minds and we're ignorant of it. So we come in and Jesus's word comes and it just, it doesn't land because our hearts aren't soft to it. And, and in that moment, in our passivity and our over-responsibility, just like the disciples, we too then start to set the boundaries for Jesus's love where he would never set them. And, and what we do in that moment is, is we make our boundaries his boundaries and tell others that they're Jesus's boundaries. And so before we fully turn our attention to the teaching text today and how Jesus's love breaks down our boundaries and invites us into a third way, a, a counter-cultural inclusion, let's just name the proverbial elephant in the room when it comes to the word inclusion. Jesus and the gay community. Now I know, Inclusion conversations go far beyond our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters. Uh, they are robust, they're complex. These conversations are full of nuance. It's, it, it reaches out to interfaith conversations and race and class and caste, the whole gamut. And to be clear, this talk is neither about one facet of inclusion because the implications of Jesus's love are multifaceted. And neither is this about the breadth of inclusion, because that would take multiple weeks, uh, if not months, for us to flesh out. Maybe down the line, it, like after February, when we're done with the gospel according to Mark, maybe we'll go there then. But for now, this talk is about the countercultural inclusion of Jesus that emerges here in Mark chapter 9, a, a place where we can receive Jesus's counter way in the world, a refreshing way in the world. And so to see how we get there, turn your attention with me back to verse 36. This is, this is what we read there. And he, this is Jesus, took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, so let's remember, that's the 12 who are seated down around Jesus. Now, child in his arms, speaking to the 12, scene is set. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And stop right there. Do, do you remember that the disciples were thinking about the kingdom of God in terms of status? Remember, they, they, Mark records, they're asking this question, well, who's the greatest? 
This is a contrasting moment. In, in contrast, Jesus intentionally seeks out a child, places him in front of, not just as an object lesson, but literally in front of the disciples, and then embraces the child. And so in a conversation with status in the air, Jesus does this ultimate power move. It's the, it's the ultimate upside down power move. <laughs> See, not only does Jesus disrupt the, the cultural understanding of who's in and who's out in social standings, because a child has no social agency. There, there's no status, there's no inheritance, there's nothing they bring. They actually just take from you. If you have children, you know the drain that they can be, the joy they can be, and if we're honest, man, they tucker us out. So Jesus disrupts the cultural understanding of who's in and who's out by disregarding his status and embracing this child. And then he ups the ante. Go ahead and, and look at the rest of verse 37. It says this, And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And at first, it's Jesus' words are a little confusing, but if you just stare at them, they, they start to pop. To extend a welcome to a child and thereby share in their status, it's not just a pious gesture. It, this is an act aligned with the heart of the kingdom of God. Or if we could say this another way, inclusivity is at the heart of the kingdom. Because to be inclusive in a kingdom, excuse me, to be inclusive in a community of Jesus is to extend the welcome of Jesus. So where Jesus welcomes a child, a community of Jesus would welcome a child. Where, where Jesus would welcome one of no status, community of Jesus would welcome one with no status. So who is that person? Who are those people who have no status socially, culturally, familially, relationally, all the lees? <laughs> and as you begin to add it, like answer that question of who that person is, th then you start to see who Jesus is moving toward. See, because to be inclusive in the community of Jesus is to extend the welcome of Jesus period, without exception. And the disciples have either missed that or lost the plot line entirely. And we actually see that. Just jump down with me to verse 38. John, there's other, uh, Eugene Peterson in his little paraphrase of this in the message, he just puts teacher exclamation point. That's the introduction to verse 38. <laughs> I love it because it's like, it's like John doesn't get it and he needs Jesus to get his point. So John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. To this very moment, Jesus is instructing the disciples on, on how his love moves him and his followers and his ministry toward others. And the disciples in that moment depart even further from the heart of their rabbi Jesus and they interrupt him. And then in that interruption couched within that is a desire to affirm their own position, make their own name great, and thereby increase their status. And I, just notice their concern in verse 38. So there's a person, this no-name follower of Jesus, casting out demons. And I, I think that we can all agree that less demons in the world, that is a good thing. But this person is rebuked. And check out the line, why? Because he was not following who? Jesus? 
No, because he was not following us. So let me ask, uh, what's, what's Jesus been doing the bulk of his ministry? <laughs> if, if you've been with us here since January, what, what have we heard time and time again? Jesus has been casting out demons. Like one of the most vibrant displays of God's in-breaking kingdom is when Jesus himself and his followers release people from the bondage of unclean spirits. It, there's these beautiful moments. They're set free. They want to follow. It's like, oh my gosh, some of the most vibrant moments of the in-breaking kingdom are when people are set free from demonic possession and then included because, because Jesus exercises, he excludes the demon and includes them into the kingdom life. And now this no-named follower is participating in the way of Jesus. And, and John is, is pretty clear, under the authority of Jesus's name, which by the way, that's what Jesus gives. It's curious, huh? Jesus is the one who has the authority to give his authority away. And this no-named follower has the authority of Jesus's name. So that just makes me think a little bit, but... I won't chase that rabbit. So there this, this no-name follower is casting out demons, doing kingdom work, and John wants to exclude him? Trust me, this is as ridiculous as it sounds. And Mark's got us right where he wants us. It's because almost everything is polarizing to the proud. To the proud, everything splits right down the middle. It's either this or that. Because the heart that is proud says things like, if you're not for me, you're against me. Pride is, it's, it's the path upon which we turn inward. It's the way of self-importance absent from God. And it seems obvious here that the disciples' departure from Jesus' character, that is a, a character that welcomes and embraces and includes, that their departure from that is because they've turned inward. And now we can sit here and, and diagnose and perhaps diagnose accurately the state of the disciples' heart at this point in the gospel according to Mark. And, and we can do that some 2,000 years later, but the more pressing question is, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to diagnose ourselves? And Dr. Uh, Brian Loritz, who's a leading expert on race and reconciliation, I would recommend any of his books. Uh, they're fantastic, especially in the season that we find ourselves. Uh, but he has this little litmus test to help us see if we struggle with pride, if, if we are frequent travelers on the path that turns inward. And, and this little litmus test, it has a, a few questions. And so if you will, I, I would just like to submit these questions to you. And the first question is this, is, are you easily offended? If you're offended at this question, <laughs> <laughs> we need to go no further. But if you're wondering, uh, Dr. Loritz says it's almost impossible to offend a humble person. And, and the reason that he gives is that a humble person is, is really genuinely concerned with others. In other words, it's like the, the person who embodies the way of, of Jesus, they lay aside their rights. And because they've laid aside their rights, they can be confident in who Jesus is. And because they can be confident in who Jesus is, they don't have to fight for their own rights. And therefore, they're not easily offended because they don't have a lot to defend. Second question, are you a people pleaser? And I'm not talking about those of you in our community who have a genuine gift of, of service, like 
a gift given by the Spirit, or, or those of you who are active in service, I'm, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to those of you who can't say no, who your superpower is, in some sense, the inability to say no. It's people-pleasing, and, and if this is you, you, you'll know this to be true, and you'll know it to be quite accurate. Um, people-pleasing is about being accepted through your service, not the service itself. And the risk is this, that if you don't serve, you won't be accepted. Do you see the pride there? Third question, are you timid? And I found this question really interesting, and it's, what I've learned is that it's not so much being shy, it's closer to being passive. And here's an example, if, if confrontation is necessary, say, between two parties, maybe this is you, if confrontation is necessary, the timid person will pass. They're, they're gonna let it go on by because of the, the potential risk of personal pain. So they're gonna let it pass because of the potential risk of personal pain. Whereas a humble person cares more about the development of another and is therefore willing to endure the personal pain for the other's good. The timid's interest is ultimately their own. See the pride there? Question four, do you find it hard to apologize? For most, I imagine this is pretty intuitive. You either said yes or no, but if you're waffling, here are some clues. <laughs> you apologize like this. I'm sorry you feel that way. Or, or here's a good one. Uh, I didn't intend to hurt your feelings, but. Most of the time that you kind of offer a pseudo apology and then qualify it with but, you didn't quite mean it. You see, it, it takes a willingness to turn away from our own self and toward God to apologize. To do this, we have to name the thing. We have to own it. We have to be really willing to confess that thing publicly if it's been a public sin or offense. And then we have to ask for forgiveness. The proud simply will not do that. Question five. Are you the center of every conversation and scenario? Yes, this too is a facet of pride because uh, not only does your path turn inward, but anybody who comes in your sphere of influence, their path gets sucked into your gravitational pull. Question six, do you find it hard to pray? Now, this is not me trying to beat the drum of prayer or say, hey, I want to build a culture of prayer here. I want the Spirit of God to spur us to pray. It, okay, so it is me saying that, but I, I didn't originate. This is genuinely one of Dr. Loritz's questions and to be a part of this litmus test to diagnose pride in our life. So it, prayer, if prayer is the space where we say to God, I need you, the proud person will never say that. If prayer is the space where we say, God, I want to know your heart. I, know, I want to know your will and your way. I need you. I need more of you, which in turn means less of me. Then a life absent of prayer is a proud life. Because a life absent of prayer is not silent. It's just saying different things. It's saying, I don't need you, God. Do you see the pride there? And lastly, if you said, what do these questions have to do with me? You and I struggle with pride. 
See, we all struggle with pride. And that's what makes Jesus' words all the more vexing when we get back to our passage. So go, go with me to verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. Speaking about the no-name follower who's casting out demons, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Did you catch verse 40? For the one who is not against us is for us. And somehow, this inclusive statement of Jesus could not be more counter to our inclusive culture. And that's, that's a weird statement. So let me say that again. This inclusive statement could not be more counter to our inclusive culture. And you're saying, okay, well, why? If the statement is itself inclusive. Well, I think because Jesus has just flipped the pride paradigm. And in this moment, he's invited us into a third way, this way of humility. See, for Jesus, the absence of opposition is affirmation. So where there's no resistance, there's affirmation. It's like Jesus has an optimism about the ability of people's hearts to be won into the way of Jesus. It's as though Jesus has in his imagination that his followers would have a love so vibrant and, and so beautiful and so compelling in the world that irrespective of someone's faith preference, they would want to join these Christ followers in the good work they are doing. And that over time, they would say, my goodness, their striving is not to build up their self. They're not doing this to pad their resume. They're not entering into these hard moments. They're not serving the poor and the vulnerable and the weak because they have some sort of void they need to fill in themselves. No, this is coming out of the overflow of something, something that we know is, is the love of Christ. Because for Jesus, the ab absence of opposition, now that's affirmation. But we don't do this very well, do we? And I'm not just talking about us here at Gateway. I'm, I, I'm making a more meta claim here about Christians. And if you want any evidence of this in the moment we're in, like this election cycle, just go on Twitter. And if you want, I mean, you, you have, I imagine, three or four devices near you right now. Just go on Twitter and search the hashtag John MacArthur. And you will find some pretty intense stuff. It's a bloodbath, if I'm going to be honest with you. You'll have progressives condemning fundamentalists. You'll have conservatives bashing Democrats, liberals just balking and name-calling. And then, in most of their bios, like the little taglines, have insider talk that lets you know they're a Christian. It'll be like, bought with a price, or audience of one, or uh, just simple follower of Jesus, or little like cross emojis. And I think that's the biggest irony is the cross emoji. <laughs> Because the cross, the cross is the place where Jesus is going. It's the place that his disciples say nothing to. It's the place where he's formed by death. I imagine if Jesus jumped on Twitter and he tweeted verse 40, like the one who's not against us is for us, like hashtag third way or something like that, I think he would be torn apart. 
because inclusion requires us to, to hold the tension of opposition from both sides. And this is, church, this is where it gets really interesting in the way of Jesus because Jesus isn't just inclusive. I mean, my goodness, he's called a friend of sinners. He's, he's called a glutton and a drunkard. He's with sinners and prostitutes. So he's, uh, those people today, like um, tax collectors would be tax farmers. These would be, I don't know, like corrupt Wall Street people or uh, sex workers. We live in such a hypersexual culture that we're not really stigmatized by that, but pedophilia, we're still stigmatized by that. So Jesus is with uh, white collar criminals and pedophiles. That's his crew. And they are living in restoration and hope with Jesus. And he's holding the tension of opposition from both sides. So Jesus is inclusive. And yet he's also exclusive. His first words on the public scene in the gospel according to Mark, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. That's everyone's favorite Christian word. (laughs) And believe in the gospel. Repent. Turn. This is a call from Jesus to us, the church, for ultimate allegiance. It's a call for allegiance to God, his kingdom, and Jesus as the king of that kingdom. And now we, this is what's interesting about allegiance. Allegiance can only be given to one thing, person, at one time. Contrast allegiance with trust. You can place your trust in multiple things at the very same time. I trust gravity. I, I, I have those moments when I'm, I don't know, in life, driving, going different places. I, that's a, a, an implicit trust I have. But I also, I, I trust Jesus. I trust my son in so far as his ability is to, his toddler brain can go. Like We can trust multiple things at the same time. I think you get the point. Allegiance is not the case. Allegiance is given to one thing and one thing only. Allegiance is singular. Allegiance is exclusive, which means, Christian, our agendas, our prerogatives, our rights, those are excluded in Christ. And at the same time, we're affirmed, we're known, and we're included in Christ. And you may be asking, and I hope you are, how in the world can that be at the same time? Well, in the upside-down kingdom of God, to abandon our boundaries of love is to receive Jesus' boundaries of love. And notice that. To abandon our definition of love, to abandon our definition of good and evil, to say, I have these desires, but they're mixed and cloudy and confusing, to take those and lay those at Jesus' feet and receive his boundaries for flourishing. That is where life is to be had. It's holding the tension of opposition from both sides. And as the esteemed theologian Thomas Aquinas puts it, if you're looking for an example of humility, look at the cross. See, the trajectory of, of God's kingdom, it's formed by the cross. And Jesus has now said it two times, that he's, he's going to Jerusalem to be handed over. He's giving these hints, like, whoever wants to come after me, pick up your cross and follow me. Because the cross is the culmination of Jesus' love 
and therefore to align our lives with Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, is to embrace the cross, the place where Jesus himself goes because he said these words, your will, not my will be done. This is the heresy of our world. My will, not your will be done. That's why there's layers of exclusivity with Jesus. Because if going to the cross is the place of abandoning our will with allegiance to God and trusting him in that space, then it means I allow my preferences, I allow my expectations, I allow my agendas to go there with me and die so that I might live into the agendas and expectations and allegiance of Jesus. This is not momentary, my friends. This is is the pathway of what Eugene Peterson calls the long obedience in the same direction. One direction. Toward and with Jesus. This is, this is why following Jesus is the most beautifully frustrating thing. Because on one hand, we have the most inclusive person, I think, in human history, who, who is himself defiled yet never defiled, who goes to the spaces that we would balk and scoff at, that we would be scared to send our children. He goes there and abides there, lives there, receives the people there. And he also says that he is the way. He he says, there's there's no other way. He, He says challenging statements that say that includes you're not the way to me, I'm the way to me. See, the tension of Jesus, the paradox of the way of Jesus is that the first are last that the dead come to life, that the lowly are exalted. And so in this season, like none other, and I'm talking about the election season that we're in, just to be very plain, I think that we need to be slow to speak, that we need to be quick to listen. In this season, we we need to make every effort to bring our pride to Jesus as the vice that it is, as a thing that strangleholds life so that it might actually be put to death. So that if we say that I have been crucified with Christ, it is not I who live, but Christ in me, that if we wanna say things like Christ is in me, the hope of glory, then we might be willing also with John the baptizer to say he must increase, I must decrease. And I'm not saying lose your personality, lose your identity, lose any of things. No, no, no. It's to say that our true finding of ourselves is in Christ. That the love of God looses us up to be who we actually are. Do we bring all of that to Jesus so we might live? And church, I think that if we're to rejoice with the work of God around us in our midst, there's this deep work of repentance that we need to do. We need to turn to God and believe the good news. And this is something that's so compelling here, that Jesus is willing to work with those who are willing. He's willing to partner with those whose hearts are soft towards the renewal of the kingdom. 
I can't tell you how many conversations I've had about the dynamics of, well, whose group is right? What tribe has it correct? Well, where is the gospel really? What does it mean to be a true believer? It's annoying because what we miss in the midst of our tribalism is the work of the kingdom of God. We, we actually see like shriveling vines and no fruit and say, that's flourishing. We're fooling ourselves. And so Gateway, if you will with me, with your eyes fully fixed on Jesus, if you would be so bold as to pray this prayer with me this week, Spirit of the living God, search me. With our eyes fixed on Jesus is to say, not, not turning to the left or turning to the right, but saying that Jesus, the one who went to the cross, who died to death so we might live, the one in whom we have abundant life, with our eyes fully fixed on him, might we say, Spirit of the living God, search me, find me out. Help me to see what I've refused to see. Help me to know where I've cast people aside and said, this is the extent of God's love. Help me to be so bold as to name it, to own it, to confess it, and to ask for forgiveness. Because Gateway, the beautiful thing that we have in front of us is an opportunity to live lives in keeping with repentance. And as we close, I have one, one story. In the Old Testament, you can read about this in 2 Chronicles around chapter 40. <laughs> You'll encounter this guy named King Josiah. And in the years before him, the generations before him, there is a crumbling temple. The evidences of God's covenant faithfulness are all but absent. The people who were wed to God have abandoned him. They've whored after other gods. And, and the, the place of Israel is in a state of disrepair. But at eight years old, Josiah comes to reign and, and there's something soft in his heart. There's this movement of repentance that he leads the people into. See, in, the mo in Josiah's time, there is a deep repentance. He, he starts to name the injustices, so he tears down the high places. He goes to the places where these, these Ashtaroth poles, the places where child sacrifices would take place, and he goes there and he tears them down. The priests who would administer those sacrifices, who, who've long since died and are buried in the ground, he takes and big, digs up the bones and burns them so that people might not memorial, memorialize them in the future. He looks at the areas that have impeded the life of the people of God of being fully allegiance, a full allegiance to God. And he takes them and he puts them to death in the name of God so that life may come. So, so he deconstructs, but he also begins to build. And then he starts to search in the, in the rubble of the temple and they find the book of the law. What's thought, what scholars think is Deuteronomy, which is uh, Moses is speaking again to the covenant people of God, the descendants of those who will inherit the promised land. And in there, there is a, a tearing of the clothes, a true and deep repentance. And it's, it's out of this community. And this is, this is where I want to bring us to conclusion. It's out of this community that we then see some 40 years later, exile take place. We see the people of Israel turn away again in a generation and get sent into a land by foreign powers. 
but it's there where 13-year-old boy, maybe you know, Daniel, can stand up in the face of imperial oppression because he has been so formed by a generation who repented. See, I don't, I don't know what will be made of our generation. But we have in front of us an opportunity to be a community who releases our bounds of inclusion and receives Jesus's bounds of love, who says, yes, Jesus is inclusive and exclusive, that my allegiance is to him and him alone. And because of that, I will receive and welcome all irrespective of status. We have a chance to do deep repentance. And I think the place where we get to start Gateway is with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, praying, Spirit of the living God, search my heart. Amen.